Hello and welcome back or welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. In this episode, I talked to John Doria, who aside from being one of my professors at William James College, is generally one of the nicest men I've ever met. Uh, and I think majority of his students would say the same. John has done it all and seen it all when it comes to education. He's been a classroom teacher, guidance counselor, principal, superintendent, and, and now teaching uh, at the highest level. John's perspectives on education and specifically on the role of culture in education is fascinating. And I hope you really benefit from hearing his very experienced voice. Uh, without further ado, here is John Dory. John, how are you? I'm good, Matthew. I'm excited to talk with you. Yes, I'm very excited. We were chatting a little bit here before we went on air and uh, a lot of great things to talk about. Uh, so as I mentioned to you, uh, if you wouldn't mind just in, uh, introducing yourself to our listeners, uh, you are a man of many hats. <laughs> okay, well, uh, my name is John Doria, and uh, I guess the main frame I would think of myself as in terms of my profession as an educator. So this is my uh, 47th year as an educator, started out teaching mathematics, then uh quickly moved into counseling because I realized for kids to learn math, there was an emotional component that was always getting in the way. And then I realized, wow, leadership makes a difference. And I became a principal for 23 years and then a superintendent uh, of a district and then ran a professional development organization aimed at supporting educators throughout uh, the Eastern seaboard. And then um, now I'm currently teaching uh, I had a post at Penn for a while, and now I'm teaching in the organizational psychology and leadership psychology at William James College. And as full disclosure for my listeners, John is actually one of my professors, and I have the fortune of having him as my advisor. So we are not unfamiliar with each other, (laughs) but really looking forward to this conversation. Okay, John, as has become the trend in this podcast, um, I want to figure out your cultural origins. So where you came from, what culture meant to you. So let's just start with the the very first unit, family. Tell me about your family. Where are you from and what was that like? So uh, I I think of myself as an Italian-American. My father, although he was born in this country, uh, he left as a baby because his father was conscripted into the Italian army during World War I. So he went back to Italy and grew up in Italy and came here um, as an 11 year old, you know, crossing Ellis Island. And uh, my mother's history is similar, uh, you know, immigrant family from uh, the Naples region and, you know, watched as they tried to make sense of this country and make sense of the world from their perspective. They experienced quite a bit of discrimination initially, uh, but they you know, made a good living. Uh, my father was a house painter, my mother was a school secretary, and uh, she put herself through college and we actually graduated the same day. Wow. Uh, I, I graduated from Boston College in 1971 and she graduated from Queens College. Um, and it was pretty amazing feat for her um, and, you know, she really deeply valued education and saw it as 
a way to you know succeed and inspired me to uh, continue in that and um, you know I, I think my roots around um, family and connectedness uh, you know certainly had many contributions from the sort of the cultural side of what it means to be an Italian American growing up in New York at what part of New York uh, Brooklyn initially and predominantly Italian community yes so let's move out and integrate you into that community who were you in that community so I you know I was weird my I have a much I had a much older brother and sister my brother passed uh, just recently they uh, my brother was 12 years older than me and my sister eight years older than me and they were really the central family I came along I was a mistake eight years later. And at the time, my parents uh, stayed in Brooklyn when I was born, but then they moved out to Long Island. And unfortunately, it was part of white flight. Um, and um, so I saw myself as both an insider and an outsider. I certainly was part of my family and connected, but because of this great distance, from my older brother and sister, I kind of was like almost like an only child. I had close uncles and aunts and my grandparents, and we visited them constantly. But I never felt situated uh, in the family. And as much as I loved my parents and loved their values, I found their racism and anti-Semitism mm -hmm. to be highly um, toxic. Mm -hmm. And I found myself wanting to flee. And uh, I ended up leaving the family at 17 and going to Boston and never returning. And I think part of the reason I never returned is as much as I, as I said, I had these deep roots, I never felt comfortable being there for this other side of things. And I think being an Italian American and being an ethnic sort of person that way, there's a pull because people want you to be loyal to your family, but being loyal to your family sometimes meant being loyal to those perspectives, and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I broke with the family, and, you know, there's always penalties for that. You know, I kind of uh, felt disconnected from them. Well, first, I want to thank you for sharing that, um, and I want to follow that thread a little bit. You, you mentioned the values, and unfortunately, in this case, it's kind of the negative values around uh, racism. What what were some of those deep values that your parents brought with them from Italy? Well, I mean, I think it was the importance of uh, family and connectedness. Um, you know, our dinner table, none of us ever missed a dinner. <laughs> so when we sat down for dinner, everybody was always present, both, mm -hmm. I, I, I think, physically and emotionally. And, you know, it, food was obviously a key factor and um, sort of the deliciousness of food, the deliciousness of wine uh, and the camaraderie that comes out of that were just daily in my family. And so that was a big part of it. Um, my mother was, I, I think, you know, advanced for her place in the sense that she was really thoughtful and wanted to exceed, but she was a woman, she was an immigrant and she had to fight limitations. And so she 
she made a bridge by being a school secretary. And I think she saw in a predominantly Jewish school how Jewish families dealt with education and realized, wow, we can learn a lot here. And so she pushed us, all of the children, you know, to go to college, which at the time for my older brother and sister, particularly my sister, was, was not common. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think those were some of the values that came out of that. So help me understand this wonderful paradox of your mother working in a Jewish school in a time when they inhabited a great deal of anti-Semitic feeling. Yeah, it was hard to figure out. It really was because I sensed in my mother admiration and um, sort of uh, maybe jealousy, maybe you know, falling into sort of the cultural stereotypes inappropriately. I remember uh, when I was in college once, I brought home a woman who was Jewish and her father was a uh, plastic surgeon, very, very famous and successful plastic surgeon. And we were just sitting around sort of talking, my mother, and she mentioned something casually about her, you know, Jewish faith or background. And my mother said to her, you're Jewish? You're Jewish? And I was so deeply embarrassed because it was like she couldn't comprehend something and it wasn't making sense to her. Um, but, you know, I, I think my mother was, um, you know, complicated as all parents are and pulled in multiple directions. And yes, it was uh, a juxtaposition of two opposites. Yeah. What did you learn from your mom? You know, I, I learned uh, the importance of hard work and effort for sure. Uh, I think my mother had some very, very tough scenarios that she emotionally uh, didn't deal with. My father actually, interesting enough, was more in touch with his feelings mm. and more willing to share his feelings than my mother was. And so as a man growing up, a young man, you know, I, I think I was blessed that my father was more centered. My mother dealt with, I think, the challenges in her life by compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. And so I watched that happen and made a decision, not consciously, but, you know, that I was going to head towards my father's approach. My father was a was on the second tier in the family because he wasn't well educated. He only graduated from eighth grade. He was a house painter. Uh, so he didn't really quote unquote made it. He was out of work a lot because mm -hmm. of the construction industry and that caused tremendous stress. And my mother would yell at him when he lost his job. Mm -hmm. and, and so I grew up watching these fights and, and thinking, that I understood where my father was at and aligned myself more with my father than my mom. Yeah. Even though she, again, was a tremendous influence. It was that odd set of juxtapositions, you know? Right. And what did you learn from your dad? Uh, my father was pretty intuitive and very people-oriented. Uh, he walked in a room, people loved him. And he just connected with people, very insightful, uh, but he wasn't well-educated. and. So the two things I learned, one was that you could be smart without being scholarly. Yeah. And the other thing I learned was in watching the dynamic 
uh, between my mother and father. I don't know if I told this story to any of the classes, but uh, my, my mother would be often yelling at my father almost always because he lost his job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what he could have been doing, what he should have been doing at the union hall, whatever. So when I started my doctorate, uh, there was a professor who, at the end of our first year, said he wanted to videotape us because he wanted to show us this videotape at the end when we got our doctorates. And, and so he had us all go up in front of the class for like a three-minute videotape. What did we learn? Why are we interested in what we're interested in for our doctorate? And what I was interested in was uh, creating a climate in schools where children would not be ashamed of their mistakes, mm. but where they would learn from their mistakes. Mm -hmm. And as I was preparing my remarks and just about to get on stage, I had this aha moment, which was, oh my God, the reason why I'm interested in this is because I observed my mother berating my father for his mistakes, and I'm trying to make peace with this. Yeah. So, I, so I get up there and start sharing this connection, and all of a sudden I just broke down and started sobbing um, uncontrollably as they're videotaping me. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and had the realization that, wow, uh, this is what my life's work is about mm -hmm. to try to repair that for other people. Yeah. And it was, I think that was the beginning of sort of my deep interest in culture. That is a fascinating story. And again, I thank you just for sharing that with me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm wondering, was your father aware? No, let me rephrase it. Did your father experience shame over his lack of education? Oh, yeah, he very much. Not over his lack of education, but mm -hmm. of his lack of being able to consistently work. So for him, I mean, it's a different time, of course. He didn't feel a need to be more educated. He was just doing the thing, working for the family. But it wasn't a sense of he missed out on education. It was just get out there and work. Well, I can't say for sure because uh, there's this dynamic in Italian families uh, it's called umast, which is the master. And the umast in an Italian family is the oldest male child. And the oldest male child in the really traditional families would get all the inheritance and get, you know, sort of the closest to the parents. And my father was the second oldest. So the oldest in his family, his brother Nick, was born a little over a year ahead of him and very psychologically important when my father was born uh nick started getting ill mm. and and so the mother started stop giving my father her breast milk wow and gave it to the her older brother and i think that notion of not being good enough being mm -hmm. second place really influenced my father and he had, he he, he was challenged by depression uh a couple of times in his life he got deeply depressed clinically depressed so i think that it's hard to say what 
what he he never articulated as education because he, he often thought academics were full of shit. Right. You know, he just thought it was a lot of baloney. But I think he wanted to be seen as more successful and more valued than he was. And so that makes me think about the the racism. Was this, you know, the very common trope of immigrants, crabs in a barrel fighting amongst themselves? So to lift my, myself up, I'm going to denigrate other people who are on that same tier? I believe so. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, I, I, it's really an interesting thing. What's the history of it? Because you would think there would be a deeper understanding for people who, who struggled. Um, I told my wife recently, you know, my mother really struggled in school because she didn't speak English when she first went to school. And, and I got into this fierce argument with her when I became a teacher because she was totally opposed to bilingual education. And I said, why are you opposed to this? And she said, well, I did it. You know, I put myself right. through it. And that's the way you do it. You shouldn't have to give people and make it easier for them. Mm. It's, and so I think they saw at the time that blacks, they didn't see the, the systematic racism that created these conditions. They just saw blacks being on welfare. Right. And because they were on welfare, they were not working hard. And that went against their deep belief that you have to bootstrap yourself out of these conditions. Right. And the American dream. It is the American ethos, right? If yeah. you work hard, you get successful. And if you're not successful, it's because you didn't work hard. Right. They, yeah. they believe that totally. Mm -hmm. I want to go to Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, part of what fascinates me from um, members of a certain generation, all due respect, uh, from, <laughs> from, 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 uh, from certain from cities, but specifically New York, is this concept of the neighborhood. And it, it, you know, I'm not from the city, but I can certainly understand it. It's almost a mythical property. But if we're going to talk about culture, what, what was the neighborhood? Well, it was, you know, in Italian, the word is paisan. And so the neighborhood is basically a bunch of paisans, which are people who share your country of origin. And in some cases, the way the neighborhoods worked out, uh, the locale from that country of origin. And so the neighborhood were basically a lot, mostly people from the Naples region. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just a series of uh, storefronts, many of which were, uh, you know, that sold products, Italian foods and, you know, sort of the, uh, the pork store, which is kind of funny because you don't think of a pork store anymore, but you know, these, these were stores that basically stole all the salamis and the prosciuttos and everything else. And the churches, uh, you know, my parents were not super religious, but on the other hand, you know, the church was still part of their mm -hmm. uh, scenario. And, you know, my son now lives in Brooklyn, completely different generation, obviously. Yeah. And he lives in a neighborhood adjacent to the neighborhood that my parents were in. And a lot of the components of the neighborhood are still there. And so you look around, you see these Italian restaurants, you see there's actually a pork store still, Italian bakeries, churches, um, and a lot of people who uh, tend their gardens. You know, it's a big issue of mm -hmm. when you walk in this neighborhood, you just see 
uh, fruits and vegetables growing up because that was part of the countryside around uh, Campania was the area of Italy that this was from. So, you know, I love the word paradigm and uh, I tend to want to frame uh, cultural understanding through this, this lens that comes from uh, Jerry Johnson. So if, um, if in, and I would ask you to draw on whatever experience you'd like. So this could be your family, this could be the neighborhood, it's free association. But if, you're, if that culture of that place was a symbol, any graphical representation, what would it be? Um, first thing that popped into my mind was safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, a circle, a community, a wheel where, you know, it sort of protects you from the outside and sort of focuses you in inward. Mm -hmm. What was the story that that community told itself about itself? Uh, that this is a safe place and this is a, a proud place. Um, we're proud of who we are and we don't like strangers. Mm -hmm. and and people who are not like us uh, are not welcome. And what were the rituals and routines that supported that story? Uh, you know, Italian language. So people would be speaking in a language that other people couldn't understand, but, other, but people from the neighborhood could. Mm -hmm. um, there were, you know, the rituals of, uh, you know, espresso shops, you know, that served important drinks that people felt were critical, whether they be espresso or cappuccino, then, you know, the stores had to sell the products that were important to people, the certain kind of meats, uh, you know, the holidays. So, you know, the Feast of the Seven Fishes at Christmas time, you know, where Italians have this big dinner on Christmas Eve and have to eat seven different kinds of fish. Well, if you're in the neighborhood, you know, every store is going to really help you achieve that mm -hmm. ritual by selling the products you need in a timely fashion. Um, I think uh, there were beliefs, you know, around uh, the role of men and women. Gender, I think, was a big issue in terms of superior, like women, in a sense, actually ran the families, but they did so incognito. Mm -hmm because it, they, it was the men who had superior status. What about, what was control and what was its system? Say it again. What was control and what was the system of control? Again, free association in that neighborhood. Uh, you know, when my parents uh, decided to leave, they were considered uh, outcasts. They were, sh they got a lot of grief for leaving. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the system of control was mostly around how people talked about you, not only to your face, but behind your back. Interesting. And I think that uh, eventually the entire neighborhood moved to where my parents moved to. <laughs> which is mm -hmm. kind of funny, like yeah. over the course of probably 20 years, 
just about every uncle and aunt and everybody else ended up moving into the same region of Long Island. But in the beginning, it was really tough. And you can imagine, you know, going from a tight knit neighborhood where your cousins and nephews were, and all of a sudden you're in a place where there are multiple ethnicities, uh, and then you're a little bit shunned. So in order to compensate for that, uh, my parents would go to Brooklyn every weekend uh, mm -hmm. to try to keep alive the connection. So that informs my next question, which what was power and how was it exercised? So in, uh, in, in, in my two families, my mother and father's family, uh, power was centered in my mother's side with her mother. She was the queen. Everything revolved around her. She dictated um, what the situation was, how frequently people had to come over, what they needed to do. They, they obeyed her um, the way people would obey a general. In mm -hmm. um, my on my father's side, it, it was less clear because my father's father really became ill and was unable to care for himself. And his mother was much more of a passive, you know, servant rather than a strong figure. And so on my father's side, uh, the power really rested in the oldest son, the Umast. Mm -hmm. And he was the most successful. He became a manager, which at the time, you know, having a leadership position for an immigrant was pretty unusual. And he had two sons. One became an architect and the other became a high powered lawyer. So he clearly was the, you know, place that, you know, I'm the most successful. I'm, I'm the one who is holding the power of the family together and I will dictate basically uh, scenarios. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So now let's go to the start of your journey, which is what was education to you? Uh, you know, when I, I was in college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest with you. I, my mother kept on telling me to go into mathematics because this was at the start of the computer revolution. Computers were still huge uh, room size machines. Yep. And uh, my brother, who was 12 years older than me, worked for Sperry Rand. He also majored in mathematics. But I, I never really felt passionate about mathematics. When I was in college, I found college level math courses to be dr dreary. Mm -hmm. um, but I was very excited about philosophy. I majored also in philosophy, really loved working with uh, people in a teaching in small little samples of teaching. So um, the Vietnam War was on and I got a number uh, which was in the 200s, which was fairly safe for the draft. Uh, but not guaranteed. So I decided to uh, make myself available to the draft. There was this deal that if you, if you open yourself up to the draft for six months and you didn't get drafted, they would sort of skip over you. So that's what I did. 
I didn't get drafted. <clears throat> so then I, I started applying to teaching jobs and there was a teaching job at a Catholic school in East Boston that paid very little, but they had an interesting grant. They had a Ford Foundation grant that if anyone taught in their system, they would provide them with a master's degree free of charge in open education. So I thought it was a good deal, started teaching in East Boston <clears throat> and started my master's program in open education, which at the time was this movement that said uh, basically that if, if you want kids to learn, they have to construct their understanding and meaning. So rather than talking to them, you have to create, it was really an early version of project-based learning, right. quite, quite frankly. So got my master's degree in open education. And what about um, as a child? What was your relationship in and with education? So I went to Catholic schools um, and up until eighth grade, uh, my, the nuns told us that if uh, only some of you get the calling, you'll know if you get the calling to become a priest. And I kept on waiting. Am I going to get the calling? I never got the calling. Yeah, the phone so didn't ring. The phone didn't ring. Uh, and I was an excellent student. I mean, I... I, you know, I actually liked school. I liked homework. I liked reading. Um, I was a bit of a nerd trying to navigate the waters of, you know, sort of being a boy who, while I loved sports, I wasn't an athlete. <clears throat> and how do you navigate that? So, um, you know, school was um, a, a good place for me. And uh, then I went to a Catholic high school in Queens, all boys. And, um, you know, I, I spent a tremendous amount of time studying. And, but when I came into school, I, people used to ask me, did you study for that exam? And I always oh, used to lie and say, you know, yeah, not me. Right. And, and, and one of the reasons I lied was not only to avoid uh, being called a nerd, but because I wanted people to think that things came easily and quickly for me because people's notion of intelligence was if you got things quickly and easily, then you were smart. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want people to think, now this was a precursor to a lot of the work I did with Carol Dweck around growth mindset when she yep. was just starting out. But um, it was an interesting personal story for me. I ended up being the valedictorian of my high school and then, um, my mother, for whatever reasons, was fascinating with Jesuit schools. Mm -hmm. She thought the Jesuits were the cat's meow. So she had me apply to all these Jesuit schools, and I did. And the one I fell in love with was Boston College. And my mother was initially happy because um, it was a Jesuit school. But later on, she felt that it was the biggest mistake in her life because, A, I fell in love with Boston, never came home. Mm -hmm. And B, the Jesuits steered me away from religion. You know, I became, became much more agnostic. Uh, Daniel Berrigan was one of my heroes. So, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, really fascinated about this idea of status and how you related to wanting to be seen as someone who got things quick. Where did that come from? I think that's, at the time, that's what we all thought <clears throat> smart people were. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that somehow or another smart people would look at a math problem, right? 
and, and they wouldn't break out into a sweat like the rest of us would. Right. <laughs> if you broke out into a sweat, there was something, you know, limited about your intelligence. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I think as a, I wrote about this quite a bit at a stage in my life, but if, if from a sports perspective, and I saw this in my own kids. So when kids start playing sports, you know, in a fairly serious way, let's say they're nine or 10 years old, there's very unequal physical development, yep. right? They're all over the place, but it's so obvious that some kids have significantly better coordination they're taller, they're stronger, and they're faster. Like it's immutable. And those kids inevitably when facing the challenges of whatever the sport proposes do better and are quicker and better at it. Yep. And the other kids struggle, right? How do I throw this ball? How do I slide? How do I hit? And they're, they're plugging away hopefully to try to get better. But these other kids almost as if, they don't have to work at it because they've been given the gift of a body that really is designed much more efficiently to be successful either at basketball, football, whatever. So I think sports uh, also reinforce this notion that, you know, quickly in fourth grade, we could tell who should be on the top teams. Right. And, you know, it's, it's obvious. Look, look, look at these kids. They're as fast or better, more, and, and, and as you watch those kids, a lot of them crash and burn when they get to high school because they yeah. haven't learned the habits and they're not coachable. But I do think in the early stages, and I see this in parenting too, that when young infants even start showing signs of word recognition or they talk faster or walk sooner, that people start thinking of them as precocious. Mm -hmm. which is a proxy for smart. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Which is, it's the very fundamental nature of all infants in a, in a way. And yet we assign so much meaning to it. And you bring up the growth first fixed mindset. I think that's fascinating that what you're really articulating is uh, this evolution from uh, a time in American society where the fixed mindset was rampant in all aspects, right? You either have, or you don't, uh, to a growth mindset, which is, yeah, you know, a 10-year-old a, a that can run doesn't mean he's going to be or she's going to be a 14-year-old that can run. Right. Uh, so that's a really fascinating connection you make there. Um, very intriguing. Um, okay, so go through school. Very good. Uh, very good student. Uh, off to college. Another good student. Did you have any uh, teachers who really inspired you or made you think differently about teaching? Um, no, I, 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 I mean, I, I'm sure I did, but the, the thing that influenced me about teach my school years, you know, I saw a lot of traditional teaching. Um, I, I love this math teacher that I had for calculus in high school. He was funny. Uh, but he taught very traditionally. Yeah. Um, and there was an English teacher that I had in high school that at the time I didn't realize, but he was probably gay. And he was very creative, outside the box, very dramatic, uh, but also taught very traditionally. Uh, I had a Latin teacher who was tough as nails, also taught very 
traditionally. So I didn't see a lot of models of really creative teaching. But the, the way school influenced me that's related to teaching is uh, I had a lot of group experiences in high school, some of them related to religion, some of them related to the uh, the T group movement, which was really initially starting back then. Mm -hmm. And I was placed in groups because of this and realized that I could do things in groups or with groups that it seemed like people thought was special or different or unique. And, um, I started getting lots of feedback from people that basically was some version of, wait, wow, how did you do that? And I didn't know what it meant because, you know, you're just a kid, you're just, you're, you're plodding along. But I began over time to realize that uh, group dynamics are really an important aspect of teaching, mm. right? It doesn't, it, I don't even think people name it. But if you're thinking about it, if you're a teacher, classroom management doesn't capture group dynamics. It's an aspect of group dynamics. But group dynamics is a much bigger tent, right? And, and so early on, I began developing sensitivities and I think skills actually because of the experiences I was in that focused on becoming a facilitator of groups and, and what what was it what did you get feedback on what was it that you were doing that people were responding to um so one one of it was is the ability to notice things that were happening in the group that were not necessarily what the group was talking about but impacted what the group was talking about so subterranean dynamics and the other thing that I was getting feedback on was candor. The, the ability to speak about what was going on in a way that what didn't piss people off, mm -hmm. but also grab their attention mm -hmm. to what was going on. So you open the can, let's go with it. Uh, this, this idea of culture in a classroom, group dynamics, um, I want to talk about that, but before I do that, I need to ask your definition. What is culture? I think culture are the, are the, are the variables, the factors that create the conditions within which people are working or studying or whatever it is. So the culture of a classroom, just to make it simple, would be the dynamics and factors, both named and unnamed, uh, that are influencing behaviors uh, and choices that people make within that context. And then as you expand out, you know, the school culture has a mm -hmm. similar set of things. But, you know, if you go into a classroom, you may see rules and norms that the teacher or values that the teacher has established that we're gonna treat each other with respect, one person speaks, no one else. I, I would say that's part of the culture. The fact that she's named them, people can name. But then you watch and a student gives the wrong answer. Yeah. Now, how, how the teacher reacts and how the kids react may or may not be in sync with those norms. 
and maybe in fact following a set of norms that are unnamed or factors and energies. And I would say that culture is the summation of all those factors that are influencing people's behavior within a particular context. So when you walk into your first classroom, a young strapping lad, what, what was that experience like for you? What, what were you trying to create? Where did you learn what you wanted to create? And just walk me through that. It was a disaster. Really? Total. Oh my God. I still have reverberations from it because I had just taken a master's degree in open education and said, mm-hmm. we have to construct our understanding. I'm in a city school, city environment where kids are tough as nails. They're all living in projects. And I come in and I'm the only teacher in the school who has not set up his classroom. There are no rows. There's nothing hanging up on the walls. There's no, there's no anything in buckets. There are no activities. Why? Because this is going to be our classroom. Mm-hmm. We are going to construct it. What do you want to put on those walls? What do you want the rules to be? Mm-hmm. Well, you could only imagine. I lost the kids from day one and never able to get them back. They were in charge of me for that entire year. It was so painful, uh, Matt. I, it's it's beyond belief. It so who changed? Were you able? Did you change? Did they change? What was your evolution in that environment like? Well, I began to realize that this ideal that I was learning about in all these books that really got me excited has to become practical and pragmatic. And you can't, you can't do it that way. It, I still admired the goal, but the way to get to the goal was not to go from zero to 100. Um, so I had to change. You know? So this is fascinating because my first two student teaching placements, first was in a in the, uh, you're familiar with BOCES in New York? Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, as a BOCES. So I was yeah. doing alternative education and the, and this is a really agrarian New York. Okay. Farm country, New York. And the second was in inner city Rochester, which was at the time, uh, one of, if not the poorest school district in the nation. Right. And, uh, I remember specifically in the inner city that it was so much command and control. I was working with a teacher who was um, seen to be uh, uh, very revered for working with this population, but it was very much command and control. And, and the, the thought was, this is how you get, quote unquote, these kids to learn. So mm-hmm. I hear your story and I think, you know, you're set up to fail, not not because so much your ideas, but what was the environment these kids were coming from? From first of all, what grade was it? Uh, I was eighth, seventh or eighth grade. Seventh. Okay. Grade. Okay. So for you know six uh, previous grades, I'm fairly certain they were never asked what they wanted to put on the wall. Right. No, so they, they. I mean, it was a learned behavior, right? right? They learned that school was a teacher telling them what to do, and that was it's. There's comfort in that. Right. So, uh, you know, give yourself a little credit. Um, you, were, you were causing a revolution in the minds of young children. Uh, how long were you at that particular school? Uh, four years. Four years. What did you learn about yourself in those four years? And what did you learn about education? Well, I, I learned that I could achieve some, some aspects of the goals that uh, I wanted to achieve. To have more student ownership and engagement 
in the learning, but that I needed to provide a certain amount of structure in order for that to occur. And that, um, you know, someone helped me think it through as if learning is, is helping students paint a picture on a canvas, you want to give them a small enough canvas so they feel not overwhelmed. But, mm -hmm. And I, what I had done in that first year is created a canvas that was like a thousand feet by a thousand feet and, and asked them to paint the picture. And it was just too much white space. And so if you can, you want to create a place for them to be creative, but you have to put boundaries around it so that um, it, it's safe. Um, that, you know, choice, un, unfettered choice is actually not safe. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I thought that was an important aspect of, of that. And I also learned that I think I was probably way more focused on process than I was on content. And so I realized I had to beef up, well, within this creative process, what, what ultimately do you want kids to learn? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so um, I think I left the school with the realization that um, establishing relationships with kids was important. And I was sort of beginning to understand that. Um, giving them choices and opportunities was important. I was beginning to understand that. Giving them a certain amount of structure so that their choices were not just totally random and wild was also important. And beefing up the content uh, was also important. So, you know, it was the beginning stages of understanding teaching. You know? mm -hmm. So I want to take a snapshot right here in our, uh, our paradigm, uh, because I think I'm certain we're going to compare and contrast this as to when you hit your stride. But, you know, that first class, and at first, let me just make sure I understand, was it a one class, you're just a teacher, or was it um, departmentalized, so the kids were changing? Uh, so you had this one class the vast majority of the day, and they would leave for, like, two periods a day. Okay. But I would say 75% of the time, they were yours. Okay. So what was the symbol of that class? <laughs> The symbol of that class was uh, chaos. You know, um, mm -hmm. it would it would be a Lichtenstein painting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was the story that that class told itself about itself? Uh, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. I don't know what the hell he's doing here. Uh, somewhat likable, but I'm not learning anything, and this is crazy. And I don't and feel what, good about it. And what was their cultural relationship to learning? I mean, was this a place where these students in general took learning seriously or uh, was it a, a place where, you know, for various reasons, it wasn't viewed as such? I, I think it was mostly going through the motions of learning and that's what they had learned. But um, there were there were there were only small exceptions. So there's one student in my class who was very poor, lived in the projects and just I could just tell uh, from watching him that he had an amazing musical ear. Like there was, I got a piano in my classroom at one point, 
kid had never taken any lessons. He sits down and he's like playing something that sounded pretty good. How do you do that? Uh, you know, there were musical instruments that I had and he would hit those triangles or things in ways that made me think, wow, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, I started talking with him and began to find out how interested he was in music. And then I started thinking, how do I help this kid make a more serious connection with music? Because there's clearly some kind of raw talent here that's just dying to come out. Uh, so th that one student would be an example of someone who I saw a passion about, mm -hmm. and the passion was about learning. But in this particular case, something that wasn't my content area, but but nevertheless, there was passion. Um, it wasn't until my second year that I started seeing sort of seedlings of other students' passions because I started creating enough safety where and enough set of experience began to realize that some students were really interested in writing. Mm -hmm. some, some students were really interested in poetry. Some students were really interested in stories. Some students were really kind of fascinated by math puzzles and patents, you know? And so I, I think in the first year, I was so focused on my own survival yeah. that I couldn't see the dynamics what were going on except for this one kid. Um, and in my second year, I started seeing more because I was a little less focused on my survival, but still pretty focused on my survival. And I think that's what happens, at least to me, and I think it happens to a lot of teachers, as, as you establish the, the basics of education, you know, what some people call classroom management, and, but you create a certain amount of order and routine so that kids can be creative, that you start seeing things that you couldn't see initially. And I think for some teachers, they create that order and, and that safety and they stop there. In other words, that becomes the end as opposed to saying, no, this is a means to an end. Um, so once you get the routines down and you create norms that are allowing for what we now call psychological safety, you got to use that for the purposes of creativity and acknowledging where individual kids are at, which is a much harder thing to do, but that's the purpose of creating the safety. Whereas I think in your case, you might've been hinting at that for some teachers who were seen as very successful teachers in urban environments, their law and order approach was a means and an end. Yes, exactly. So where did, so in the, those early stages, so you just said that, you know, between year one and year two, you started to create that safety. How did you know how to create that safety? Totally experimental and watching. There was one other teacher uh, who wasn't in my building, but another building that uh, I heard kids talk about in a really positive, inspiring way. And I realized this guy's a good teacher. And he was five years in and, you know, really went to look at his classroom, talked to him a lot, had a lot of lunch lunches with him to try to pick his brain. But it was that and experimentation. Mm -hmm. There were no mentors. There was no coach. There was no courses that I could rely on. 
So what was control in your early classrooms? What was the system of control? For me, uh, you know, there was very little control I had other than, you know, talking to kids, uh, hoping they'd change, you know, consequences for kids, pretty traditional stuff, missing recess, you know, mm-hmm. detention, calling your parents in, sending them to the principal. That was the, uh, I think, the first iteration of control. Uh, over time, I realized, you know, most of that stuff is pretty ineffective and counter actually to what I was trying to achieve. So I started morphing into uh, trying to control through enticement. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, through engagement. How do you how do you attract the bees to the flowers? You know, how do you how do you, uh, as Madeline Hunter said, how do you salt the oats to mm-hmm. make them thirsty? Mm-hmm. And then what was power? And what was the power structure? Um, I, I think the power was trying to distribute the power so that uh, people not wanting to see the put me on a pedestal, um, but to see me more as a coach than a executive. You know, I was I was young. Open education was key. There was a lot of dynamics that supported this in in education, but. Um, to try to have the students realize that I was a um, sort of an older learning buddy more than a teacher. Um, and, and that was, you said, four years yeah. at that school. Then where'd you go next? So after that, I went to the other side of the moon. It was a suburban district. Um West of Boston, public school, um, high-powered in the sense that, you know, there were some really wealthy people who lived there, but it was a community that it was bifurcated. So it had uh, people buying fairly big homes and it had a bunch of farmers. And the town was morphing and I got there right when it was like bifurcated. So some of the kids sort of had a farming till the earth kind of background and others were like pretty wealthy. Um, so if we were to go through the, uh, you know, the paradigm flower, we would come up with a lot, a big difference, I would assume, between those two uh, socioeconomic centers. Right. Well, how would you compare the culture of that school to your first school? Well, it was... Uh, well resourced mm-hmm. as opposed to poorly resourced it it was led uh, by a superintendent principal who actually was pretty crazy uh, the, the, my first principal was ineffective this guy was like nuts um, and it had a bunch of teachers some of whom were very very traditional and some of whom were pretty pretty potent teachers um, so I began seeing models of teaching that were, that, that were very, at least from a traditional sense, very effective. There was a woman who taught next to me. I taught mathematics. She taught eighth grade math. I taught seventh grade math. And she taught algebra. I taught pre-algebra. And 
very traditional class, very traditional approach, but man, she got a lot out of those kids. They were, they were working problems that from my perspective were mind boggling. I was a math major and I, I was struggling to solve the problem. And so I began to realize that um, open education was a model, but th there's this other model right next to me that at least from a, were the kids learning the mathematics? Absolutely. Were they uh, fairly energized, you know, by the teaching? It wasn't like they came out crying and hating her or any of that stuff. They might not have been our favorite teacher, but she provided them with a lot. And, um, and I started realizing I got to up my game here around content, around objectives, around academic rigor that I didn't want to give up who I was in my background, but I could see a lot of lacks in me that I could look around and say, wow, I got to get better at this. So you brought up a great point that I forgot to ask about the first school and I'll ask it now about both, but, um, you know, we talked about you in your classroom, but what was it like to be a teacher in that culture of education, both in your first placement and now in your second? What was it like to be an actual teacher in that community? So, you know, once the parents in that first community thought you supported their children, they, they, they embraced you, they loved you, they cared about you, uh, they were excited to see you. Um, and I passed the test eventually, and you know I was seen as a really uh, endearing member of the community. And what about in the, the school? second community? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, within the school, um, I think teachers thought I was a little weird uh, because of the openness and the creativity. Uh, there was still a lot of nuns teaching. I was a lay person. Um, the principal was invisible. So being a teacher, it, it was fairly isolating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I was my own gig, so to speak. Yeah. And there were some benefits to that. I was considered cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I wasn't connected to the community uh, within the school. When I went to the second school, there was more people my age also interested in teaching you know so there was a small group of us that we respected each other we thought we were equally cool mm -hmm. uh and it, it wasn't a majority but we had our own little uh group and um and you know it was more traditionally run school there were more rules there were faculty meetings the first school was sort of like it was like a startup, you mm -hmm. know, it was like, th there was no, no rules. In fact, one, one day, uh, three of the teachers didn't show cause they were ill. And me and this other woman, uh, were there and we didn't know what to do because the classes weren't covered. They were going crazy. The principal wasn't there, wasn't available. So we decided to close the school that day and send everyone home. I was like totally crazy, but you know, it was, that's what I mean by a startup. Mm -hmm. the, the, the second school, you couldn't have done it. I mean, it was norms and regulations and, you know, there was a governing board and all that stuff. And so having the first experience in the first school, going to the second school, how did you feel when you walked into that classroom? 
what had changed? Well, you know, I was making significantly more money. Um, kids, I had learned enough about teaching so that it wasn't like a revolution. You know, from day one, I was fairly successful. But I had to teach some honors classes, which I didn't know what that was like. And that and that's what started showing up my weakness around content. So my first set of honor classes were okay, but I think the kids were disappointed. And that iterated into, I got to beef up my, my teaching in that domain. And then by the second year, I was off to a pretty good start, even with my honors classes. And little by little, I became, you know, an esteemed teacher in the school, an esteemed teacher in the community. And how did the culture of your classroom change? I think it was uh, it was combining the best of what I was able to do in East Boston with some of the things that I'd learned about structure and order to create safety. So it, it was a, a fairly relaxed atmosphere for students, but there was enough order that they were they were not going to get out of bounds. Mm -hmm. And how long were you there? I think I was there for 10 years. And then? So towards the end of the stint there, maybe around the eighth year, there was a new superintendent principal came on, young buck from Newton, who became a, a colleague of mine to this day. And he had just graduated from Harvard and he was sort of a parallel educator, but at up a level, right? And um, he and I hit it off pretty well. And I began starting to see that the kids, there were a few kids in my math classes who were very anxious about mathematics. Mm -hmm. And in some cases their behavior was negative because of that anxiety. And I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And the school did not have a guidance counselor. So I made a deal with this principal because I wanted to learn about sort of emotions. That if I went to school to get my certification in counseling, that he would make me a part-time guidance counselor, part-time math teacher, which he did. So the last two years, that's what my role was. And then it morphed into a full-time guidance counselor position. At that same school? At that same school. Okay, so you made the switch. And what was life like as a fledgling guidance counselor? It was different. It was easier, uh, to be honest with you, but it was working with groups, working to help teachers understand behaviors. It was tapping into the group dynamic stuff that yeah. I talked about earlier. And it enabled me to talk about emotions, which I was very interested in. And, and it allowed me to support teachers who were struggling with kids' behavior, and I would help them reframe the issue by strengthening their relationship or thinking about the behavior in a different way. Gave me a lot of practice in that. And how did it change your idea of classroom culture? Well, it reinforced the fact that if you want to be successful with students, that you had to pay attention to this domain that wasn't getting a lot of attention at the time, relationships, emotions, group dynamics. 
So this is a great segue into something we started um, when we are off air, which is how come contemporary education, education doesn't do more with this piece? Well, we actually did a lot with this piece back in the day. Um, I could, I, if I could take you in a time machine, you, you would be pretty impressed with some of the things that we did under the aegis of teaching the whole child. There was a movement called the whole child movement, yep. which was around trying to see the child more than just the academic components of the child. And it really brought in a lot of group dynamics and value clarifications and things that were relational and how important relationships were. But then when we hit that spate, when people started saying that, you know, American education is basically very mediocre. And then that became a challenge. And then the whole open education movement started to collapse because the open classroom people felt wasn't rigorous enough and walls started going up. And then inequity became clear. And once some of the stats were coming out about how unequal some of the schools were across the country, you know, then we started seeing this movement around standards and around uh, assessment and around uh, hike stakes testing, which totally extinguished that movement. It was like crushed it. And, and so now we're coming out of it again through social emotional learning. But, um, you know, there was actually a period of time. And my take on it is we went overboard. We did too much of the whole child stuff and not enough of the rigor. We didn't get the balance right. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's one. You're a guidance counselor for how many years? I think uh, four, maybe three. And then, and then you get the call up to principal? I, it wasn't a call up. I made a decision that because in this very small school that I was in, I had the opportunity to be a close colleague to the superintendent principal. He sought my advice a lot. I was a sort of unnamed co-administrator. Um, as a guidance counselor, I was advising teachers quite a bit that I could take a shot at becoming a principal. <laughs> so I did, and I got a principalship in another town. Okay. So the John that starts as a young teacher, open education, has to learn the balance, finds the balance between rigor and emotionally centered support, becomes a guidance counselor. Now you're running a school. When you become a principal, what was the school you wanted to, well, I should say, what was the school culture you wanted to create? Well, I wanted to create a school uh, culture that um, mimicked the best things of the classroom. <laughs> I was using the classroom as my experience, right? That the teachers would be colleagues, that their ideas would matter, that they would co-create with me sort of the things that we needed as a school um, and that we would treat students as a school the way I had learn to treat students within my classroom, that you create boundaries, you provide supports, but rather than punish kids, you view their transgressions or their academic failures as, well, what's at the root of it? Let's see if we can understand what's causing it because no, no kid really wants to be unsuccessful. So then when you stand up on the you know, auditorium stage, 
the first day of, uh, you know, uh, in service, how do you start laying the foundation of your vision? Similar to my first year in teaching, I had no goddamn idea. And I had a similar experience as a principal. It's sort of like, you know, you tell people what your ideas are. <laughs> and you know how successful that is. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't really impact anything. People nod and, you know, do the, and then they go do their own thing. And then you begin to realize as you observe classrooms that, oh, my God, the variance within a school is so significant. You you have you know if you created a spectrum around any any domain you want you would see people on each ends and bunches in the middle whether it's you know engagement versus war and order open education versus closed education it was an eye opener to realize and and the other eye opener was I really thought that as the principal I would have all this power and authority. <laughs> and you quickly realize it's it's a charade, you know, that, you know, unless people are abusing kids or doing something horrible, your ability to fire them is extremely limited. And how the hell do you influence them? You know, that proclamations and speeches have extremely limited value. And so the quest for me was, how the hell do I change a school? So before we get to that juicy topic, let's take a, a quick snapshot. Um, what was the symbol of that school when you took it over as principal? Um, I think it would be a traditional schoolhouse. You know, it would, you would see, you know, a series of isolated classrooms you know, it's it's like I think schools at that era, and certainly my school, recreated the single room schoolhouse just by putting a lot of them within a hallway, right? Right. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, an interconnected community working on similar uh, goals and mission. What was the story that that school told itself about itself? Um. Hey, we're a pretty good school already. What, what's this guy really complaining about? And he's pretty weak on discipline and organization. And uh, he has a lot to learn. And then what were the rituals and routines that supported that story? Um, you know, infrequent faculty meetings, uh, occasional observations of teachers, um, and, you know, basically maintenance of, of the status quo. quo. Yeah. yeah. And then what was control and what was the control system? Well, the original control was, you know, evaluation. Um, although it's limited, but people don't like having negative things in their evaluation. And I began to realize towards the end of my tenure there that Actually, what people, people are pretty uncomfortable when you talk to them about your concerns directly mm -hmm. and with candor. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that that's as powerful as writing about it. 
And in fact, it was one of the missing elements that for a lot of these teachers, they had been getting these positive valuations for years and no one ever talked honestly about some of their limitations. And so I began to realize, ooh, there's power here that I didn't tap into. Well, you brought it up and we can talk about it explicitly, but what was power at the start and where did it, what was the power structure like? In that school? Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to situate the school within a district. So it had, I don't know, maybe six or seven schools. And there was a superintendent and he was very political. And he doled out resources based on how much he liked you. So power was partly political. You had to keep on the good side of the superintendent. And then within my school, what I tried to do was not use power to control, but but to address people directly with my concerns and offer them support. So I was trying to change the power structure to say, it's not my authority. Um, you know, I think it was the early stages of trying to understand how to use my influence. Um, However, you know, during that time, there were there were one or two cases of uh, teachers acting inappropriately with students um, in terms of a sexual sense, and I did have to use my power to, you know, make sure that they were separated from the kids and the profession, and I, and and so that was another form of power. I think people saw me take a stand around some of these pretty serious cases. Yeah, and rightfully so. Yeah. Okay, how long were you principal at that school? Um, Four years. And did you go on to be another principal or is that where you went into higher education? No, then I became a principal in Wellesley, uh, a very wealthy district. And it was like going from a one room schoolhouse to, it was like going to a high school because there were nearly a thousand students. There were two assistant principals, multiple department heads who supervised teachers. So it was going from small to big. And I was a middle school principal there for 19 years. Okay, so in the, um, the previous school, at the end of your tenure, did you feel that you had changed or evolved that school's culture? Partially. You know, I, I do think it was a place where students were respected more, where relationships with students was valued more, where uh, teachers began to see the importance of talking to students with respect more. Um, but four years is not a long time. Right. Right. So then 19 years, what's that like start to finish? What did you see in yourself? What did you see in the school? You know, so it was an interesting ride. I think it was a highly departmentalized junior high. It was, for all intents and purposes, an old, it was a high school. Uh, There were uh, multiple academic levels. So eighth grade science, there were five academic levels. And that was true in seventh grade as well. They were, the departments were all fiefdoms mm-hmm. um, because they supervised and evaluated teachers. They had a lot of control. I had no idea how to work with 
these middle managers because they never had middle managers before. Um, the, the, the way the, the school was controlled was through punishment and fear. Um, and on the last day of school, there were two traditions that people told me about as a candidate. One was the last day of school. So on the last day of school, all the teachers had to man the hallways and every teacher needed to be present throughout the hallways because there was this tradition of eighth graders running wild, ripping up their books, spitting, mm -hmm. doing all sorts of horrible things and people felt like they couldn't do anything about it. And the other thing was that um, the beginning of the school, teachers were not on duty to a certain time, but students arrived 15, 20, 30 minutes early and the school didn't know what to do with the fact that the students were roaming the hallways totally on their own because no teacher could be called upon to supervise because of the way the contract ran. And so the beginning of school was very chaotic mm -hmm. uh, and teachers felt like it was horrible. It was, it was sort of the wild, wild west. There was no artwork on the hallways because of um, anything that was put up was vandalized. Mm -hmm. And the cafeteria was the second story that people told because um, it was a large school. There was like three cafeteria shifts. Each shift had about 350 students. And at the end of the shift, there was so much garbage on the ground that they had to bring in custodians during the lunch hour from all the other schools. And they had 10 custodians come through cleaning up all the garbage so that the next shift could find the table to eat at. Wow. And this was a very wealthy, high-powered, mm -hmm. high-performing district. So what, what led to that state? Um, I, think, I think there were some beliefs that were apparent that, you know, these were Wellesley kids, very rich. You couldn't make Wellesley kids clean up after themselves because that would be inappropriate. Um, people were afraid of the parents. The parents all had more power, authority, money, and prestige than any of the teachers. And so they, they would be, they were very scary. And um, people didn't believe in um, open discussions about what was not working. Uh, there was a lot of non-discussables. <laughs> Yet, you know, if you heard our jazz band, which was the, you know, really sophisticated set of musicians, they were probably better than 90% of the college jazz bands because they were equipped with uh, lots of autonomy. They were given lots of lessons. They had experienced great musicians to tutor them. So you had this funny combination of the school having demonstrated a lot of um, sort of uh, achievement, traditional achievement. And so there wasn't the impetus that you would see in a urban school where the scores were low and all that kind of stuff. And then how did you start changing that? <laughs> it, it was a great story, I think, over time. I mean, I decided that out of all the things we needed to do, it was the craziest thing because it came to me and it was a gambit that I could have lost that, but I thought we needed to start in the cafeteria. Had no academic connection at all. Can we get right. the cafeteria under control? So I put together this committee of people who had stake in this, and we started studying what were the factors 
that were contributing to the cafeteria. And we discovered that besides the garbage, which was obvious and the lack of cleanup, that we had a lot of problems. The, the food was, the students found the food choices to be pretty horrendous. Um, the, I began to interview kids and they began telling me that the worst part of their day was going to lunch wow. because there was no seating arrangement. And so they had to figure out where to sit. And the bullies and the people with a lot of social status would control tables. So if you saw an empty spot and were naive enough to try to sit there, you'd be run out of town, which would be very embarrassing. And if you sat in an empty table, you would like have a neon sign over you saying you're a loser. So students used to get sick a lot and go to the nurse. They used to hide behind the pillars, these pillars in the cafeteria, eating French fries, hoping they wouldn't be noticed so that they didn't have to sit down anywhere. And there was a lot of people missing once we started counting. So we had a raft of problems. So we started articulating all the problems and we quickly realized that the only way we we're gonna create enough safety and address this problem was gonna be to assign seating. And at that moment, the group, that was this faculty group, they just literally turned white because they realized that this was going to be explosive. And I didn't say what I started with, which was, I actually, the first thing I did as a principal, and I wrote a book about this with John Safier, um, I had learned enough that I wanted to start with developing core values. And so I did this exercise with the faculty in the opening set of meetings where I asked them to think about how they wanted their students to be different as people and as learners as a result of spending a year with them as a teacher. That was the core question that everyone had to answer. And so all the teachers, there was all, you know, like 125 faculty answered that question. I compiled all the results and there were these themes that emerged, you know, that I wanted students to love learning, blah, blah, blah. And one of the themes that emerged that became one of our core values, and you could see my hand in this, is that we wanted students in this middle school to learn from their mistakes. So when the faculty blanched, when we came to this realization, I said, well, if we want the students to learn from their mistakes, we're gonna to have to learn from our mistakes. So the worst thing that can happen is we're gonna make a bunch of mistakes, but we gotta do this. And so we had a meeting with the faculty, everyone saw the sense of it, and then we started instituting table arrangements that we knew the names of the students because we realized we couldn't hold kids accountable for cleanup because we didn't know who they were. But once someone's assigned a seat and we see a lot of dirt there, we know it's Joe Schmo. So the, it was like this explosion. The students hated it. They complained to their parents. I got these letters on letterhead from, you know, the head of, you know, the Boston Medical Center emergency room, or I mean, the, head, the CEO of this calling me out for this and that and all this stuff. But we held our ground and it wasn't perfect. It was really actually very imperfect for a while. But over the course of two and a half years, the cafeteria went from a crazy place to a sane place. And students learned to clean up for themselves 
Otherwise, I'd go on the PA and ask them to come over the announcement to come in and clean up. So accountability. A little accountability. And little by little, students and parents realized this is a much better place. And it was like an early victory that let the faculty know that we can make changes in a place like this. So that's actually one of the themes that keeps coming up in these conversations is that there's almost this need for victory at the start. So if you are changing a culture, victory show is the justification, right? Victory says to the, the culture that is changing that this is working. Well, it's, it's telling them not only it's working, but it's worth it. See, I, I, I think that, um, you know, people in our field have experienced thousands of strategies that are supposed to transform education. Many of them died. There's a graveyard so yep. big. And so, you know, people develop a healthy skepticism. What's this guy selling and, and how long is he going to be around? And I don't really believe this is going to help kids. But so, so when I sold the cafeteria changes, the most dreaded activity that any teacher could do in the Wellesley Middle School before this change was calf duty. Can you imagine being a supervisor in this cafeteria with all that stuff happening? So when people saw that the change actually had benefits, not only to the kids, but to them, then they started saying, okay, this was a change that was worth it. It actually made a positive difference. It doesn't, it doesn't buy you sufficient credibility, but there's, I call it a credibility bank that leaders have to gain. It's sort of like you do so many things as leaders that it's going to draw down on your credibility and draw down on your trust because you have to make a lot of tough decisions. And if there's nothing in the bank, you're always in negative territory. But, you know, something like this created a little positive currency in the bank, which then sustains you when you have to draw down, which inevitably you do as a leader. And so I would say this was the first big victory. And it was quickly followed by this other one that I'll tell you about, which was really weird. So the community had this tradition. I'm sorry, it didn't have a tradition around Memorial Day. So Memorial Day is a day off from school. And a lot of the veterans in the community uh, felt that the schools did very little to honor Memorial Day and all that stuff. So I was working with the community and I needed to come up with something that was symbolic of a sort of school-wide effort around Memorial Day. But you know, when you think about it, you got middle school kids, what are you gonna do? So, I work with a group of faculty and I said, you know, Memorial Day partly is about people who have given up their lives so that others can live in freedom. And it's about sacrifice. And if we want students to learn about sacrifice, what could we ask them to sacrifice that could at least mimic this? And we all quickly came to the idea is middle school kids love to talk. So can we ask them to not talk? Wow. So we came up with this ceremony. And at first there was a lot of excitement because the teachers thought it was cool and interesting. And basically it was, you know, I'll give you the short version that 
a thousand kids were going to walk into the auditorium in silence, stay in the auditorium in silence, walk back to their classrooms after they experienced this assembly in silence. And so for about an hour and a half, they were going to do this. And in the auditorium, we had local veterans that we were honoring and some member that we wanted to speak to the students about what this member did to create peace in a positive way that prevents wars. So that was the combo. But the big deal of the whole thing was silence. So everyone was talking about it and then it came time. And I had this faculty meeting and said, okay, we're all on deck tomorrow. Do you realize what we were asking? And then there was this cold silence and the faculty said, this is gonna be terrible. This is gonna be a disaster. I have so-and-so in my class he hasn't been silent for two seconds. And we're setting a stage for all the assholes in the school to rise up and be jerks. I said, we are. I said, but I'm gonna tell you something. There is nothing more powerful than collective expectations. I said, so tomorrow morning, you're gonna arrive here and all of us are going to expect the same thing. And that has never happened in the school. Wow. So I did not sleep that night, as you could imagine. And everybody was there, the central office, the press. And we watched a thousand kids enter in silence and leave in silence. And it was after that that I think the faculty, not by saying, but in so many words, turned to me and said, we're in had nothing to do with academics, neither one. Cafeteria or Memorial Day had nothing to do with academics, but they taught a lesson about the power of expectations, which is a strand of culture. For sure, and, and in fact, there, there's so much of what you said that is resonating. Uh, and just a, a couple play-by-play -play here as a recap, but number one, I, I believe in something called why, what, how, and that is, why are you doing what you're doing? So it's value creation. Uh, what are you doing? That's your mission. And then how are the behaviors? So in, in fashioning your change, you started with a bunch of values. You, uh, whether you did it explicitly or implicitly, that became a mission. And then you, uh, you know, the leader of, a, is of the environment, you encouraged and supported behaviors that reinforced that mission. And I'm sure, you know, criticized behavior, behaviors that didn't. The next is, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about psychological safety, but uh, Google did Project Aristotle. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they came up with the five, uh, the five tier hierarchy. So it starts with psychological safety. So if I make a mistake, it's not held against me. Right. From what I hear, I think that was a big part of your environment. Yeah. Second was dependability. Uh, you know, what we say we'll do, we, we do. So that's what you modeled. Uh, structure and clarity. Our team has an effective decision-making process. The work that I do, our team, the work that I do for our team is meaningful to me. And then lastly, impact. I understand how our team's work contributes to the organizational goals. Right. You were Google before Google. <laughs> now, I, it's, it is interesting that, you know, when you intuit something through experience and then you see it later played out through research, it is affirming. Um, but it's also given the 
one of my, uh, I don't know what, it, what the word is that I'm searching for, but one of my SARS, I think, is the, the university environment suggests that it's university researchers who, through discipline research, come up with insights, and those insights then influence whatever field you're researching, medicine or education. And since I was 25, I've been saying that's one direction. But the other direction is practitioners are coming up with all sorts of insights, listen to them. They're actually researching things, but in a different way. Right. And they, these things could be the form of insights that researchers could either validate or spread depending on the perspective, but it's such a one-way street and it's such a tiered system that practitioners are considered less than and researchers are considered. So I've joined the faculty <laughs> as, a, as a Trojan horse, you know, because I really believe that um, it's the practitioners who are the undervalued, undermined, um, you know, people who can really add to the field in ways that haven't, they haven't been able to. Yeah. John, it's getting, it's getting close here and I want to be respectful of your time. So I have a couple of quick hit questions for you. I think we might need to do a part two. We haven't even talked about higher education. Yet. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, what do you wish all teachers knew about culture? I, I think that I wish they understood or embraced or felt the power it has that, um, that it creates the conditions which then influences the learners. I think for too many teachers, they think the things that influence the learners are their construction of lessons and the individual's sort of reaction to those lessons, the individual's personality, the individual's qualities, the individual's choices. And those individual dynamics, I think, are really critical. But what many teachers don't value, and I actually think why I'm impressed with organizational psychology is they haven't realized that in addition to those individual dynamics, that conditions influence people and influence their behavior. And conditions is a proxy for culture, I think. Yeah. Uh, what do you wish all students knew about educational culture? You know, I, I think that, uh, I think for students that their behaviors can influence those conditions and that, um, you know, they are not just the recipients of culture, but they are the add, they add to or subtract from the culture from their behavior. And they have a responsibility to um, understand that dynamic as well. What do you see as the next evolution of educational culture in this country? Well, I, I, I'm hoping that the next evolution is that people begin to understand that culture can be strengthened when people think and act strategically and effectively. Because I think up until now, I think everyone understands that if you visited five elementary schools, you would experience five different cultures. And if you went to those people who experienced those differences and said, how come? <clears throat> they would say, in so many words, it's the personality of the leader. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think 
personality is a weak psychological term for the strategies and behaviors that the leader is uh, enacting. And that you can't change your personality, but you can change your strategies. And so you can teach someone who is using ineffective strategies that's resulting in a weak culture to strengthen the culture by changing your strategies. Um, and I'm hoping that we will figure out how to do that, how to teach that. Do you have any insight into how you see that playing out? <clears throat> well, I'm, and you, Matt, because I think you're the next generation. You've taken an interest in this. And I think that uh, it's something I, I'm guessing you believe in. And I think there are two parts to the first, you have to believe it's teachable. And then the second thing is, if you believe it's teachable, you have to actually create strategies and context and experiences that actually lead to people leaving saying, I'm a leader and I now know how, Can't, it's not a guarantee, but I know how to go into this organization and create a vibrant, healthy culture. You know, it's not, it's not just like I have to be totally on my own, totally figuring this out. There's actually a body of knowledge and research that we can tap into. Um, and, you know, there's some exciting developments that are happening around the country around this, but we're still in the infancy stage. Yeah. So the last is uh, three fill in the blank questions. The first step in creating an intentional culture is? To believe it's possible. The culture we are trying to create, and this is relative to your experience in the classroom, the culture we are trying to create in the classroom is? One that balances psychological safety with accountability. And we will know that we have created this culture when? When we see students um, obviously learning from their experiences, both their successes as well as their initial setbacks. That's so well said. John, if someone's interested in reading your work, uh, where can they find you? Well, um, there is one book on Amazon, uh, you know, co-authored by uh, Dr. Paul Ash and me. Um, there's a book that's now off of Amazon uh, that can be gotten through Teachers 21, which is a department within um, uh, William James. And um, there's a recent article I just published with two professors, one from Penn and one from Northwestern, uh, that is on the uh, uh, Penn site. And I could, I could send you, you know, the link to that. Yeah, I, and I'll be sure to put all this information on the episode links. John, thank you so much for doing this. All right, it was fun. It's been a real uh, pleasure. I wish you well. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Performance Rising Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can find all the information about the podcast at performancerising.org. And be sure to check out the Instagram page at performance underscore rising.